0: So please take out a copy of God's Word and turn in it back to John chapter 11. We will finally finish this wonderful chapter today with verses 45 through 57. You can find it on page 898 in the Pew Bible. John 11, verses 45 through 57. Lazarus lives. The dead man, the rotting, stinking four. Days, dead man is now alive. And so now we have reached the climax of the first part of John's gospel. Part two of the book begins next week. We have now seen the clearest and grandest revelation of the glory of God in Christ. What love, what power. He speaks a word and the dead is raised to life. And this is who Christ is. The Christ who claims to be the resurrection and the life. The Christ who claims that if you believe in him, you will never die. He has said it, and now he has shown it. You know, like, What if a man was dead, and another man claiming to be God spoke a word, and that dead man lived? How would you respond to such a revelation? It seems obvious. But here's the question. Here's how you can know. How have you responded to? to that revelation how are you responding to that revelation right now responses to Christ that's what we have before us in the closing verses of John part one last time was the revelation now we get the response and there is nothing more important than the response to the Christ but it could be tempting to pass over these verses to get to chapter 12, next week is the, the wonderful scene of Mary's beautiful and costly worship of the only one worthy of such worship. The one worthy of everything. That's next week. And in comparison, these verses can feel more like minor, kind of less relevant details that might have little to do with our daily lives. Our text is about the religious authorities and their plan to kill Christ. And it can be tempting to think, hey, okay, yeah, those guys, those guys are awful. The bad guys are terrible. Let's, let's move on. Let's, let's not move too quickly because there's actually a lot here. There's a lot quite relevant to our lives. There's a lot more of us in these awful bad guys than we may think. I want to argue this morning that the what that the religious authorities do here is little different from what all of us have done in our sin, or are doing in our sin, and that the why behind their what, what are they doing, why are they doing it, I want to argue that our why is little different. I want us to see ourselves in these men. I want us to consider the response to Christ in this text, mostly the negative, unbelieving, rejecting response, and I want to do it under four headings. Yes, these four headings... All start with the same letter. You're welcome. I alliterate because I love you. You can remember this. Remember these four words and remember the sermon on this important text. Plans, power, providence, Passover. Here's the sermon. God's good providence overrules man's evil plans. God's good providence overrules man's evil plans. God's powerful providence brings about our ultimate good through the death of His Son, our Passover Lamb. That's what we're going to do this morning. We want to look at their plans and we want to see our plans in their plans. We're going to see that their plans. We're going to. We can all just act like we're ignoring it, right? Just don't pay attention. Right? Just focus on the sermon. God is providentially ordaining even this. Focus on the text. All right, they're going to plan, we're going to plan. I want to see our plans in their plans. I want to see that their plans are ultimately only to preserve their power and their pleasure. And I want to argue that that's really what we are tending to do in our plans and in our sin. But then we're going to see the beauty of God's powerful providence that overrules all, that overrules our often sinful and selfish plan And then we'll close by seeing the ultimate purpose of God's uh, plan, his providence. And that's going to be the Passover. So plans, what are you pursuing? What do you desire? How are you planning to get and gain that thing? Power, why? What are you really after? It's power and pleasure. But providence, what is God planning? What is he ultimately accomplishing with his power? And then Passover, this is what it is, His glory. His glory revealed through His Son, the Savior. That's God's purpose, salvation through substitution. This is what He is doing always. This is what you need always. So let's read the text and see if any of that comes from this. Jesus has just raised a dead man to life. Everyone has seen it. Everyone knows that He has raised a dead man to life. Well, let's see what happens and let's see how they respond. John 11. I'm picking up in verse 45. I'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 57. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God of all power. Father, you have revealed that to us so clearly in this word that reveals to us your Son. Father, and yet, as we have already prayed and confessed this morning, how sinfully have we pursued ourselves and tried to preserve our own power and to seek our own pleasure and to, in a sense, Act as if we were God and you were not. Father, forgive us for how much of our lives revolves around seeking ourselves. Father, use this text to show us that tendency that remains within us. Father, use this text to reveal to us your good and glorious providence that works and overrules all for your glory and for our good. Father, use this text ultimately to show us Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, our substitute, our Savior, our only hope. Father, we desperately need your help. Father, I am not able to minister the help and the comfort to the souls of your people that they need. But Father, you are, your spirit is. So please, Father, set me aside. May my preaching not be in my own power, but in the power of your spirit. May you use this word to challenge us, to confront us. Father, ultimately to comfort us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see him and love him. We ask this All in his name. Amen. All right. point number one, we're talking first about the plans. And we pick that up from verse 53 where we see that so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. But but how did they get to that point? Let's let's take care of our context here in this first point. Because our text begins in verse 45 with what seems to be the right response to the revelation of Christ. We read that many saw what he did, the raising of Lazarus, and many believed in him. And now we have seen throughout John, chapters 2 and chapters 8 particularly, how there is such a thing as false faith. There's something that looks like faith that is not faith. And and John in chapters 2 and 8 gives us clues that the crowds often had this surfacey belief about Jesus that was not faith saving trust in Jesus. But there's not really anything in our context that would lead us to believe that there's any reason to doubt the faith of verse 45. So it seems that many see and many believe. And remember, that's the whole point of this book. John's gospel, often called the gospel of belief, is repetitively and persistently concerned with revealing the Christ to you that you may believe, that you may live. And so as we conclude part one of this book, it's a good time to remember and review John's purpose in writing. He tells us very clearly and very consistently, if this is not why you are here, if this is not what this whole thing is about for you, if this is not why you are reading and listening to John, you've missed the point. John tells us the point. Chapter 20, verse 31. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's John's purpose statement. That should be your life's purpose statement. That should be Woodside Community Church's purpose statement. Christ, faith in Him, and the life that is found only in Him. So there is nothing more important than what it is that we are doing here right now. Because there's nothing more important than life. The whole of life, obviously, is ultimately about life. But death, we all die. We had a funeral in this room yesterday. Death comes for us all. Life is spoiled. Death ends life. What can be done? And that's what this whole book is about. Specifically, this chapter, the Christ who is life. The Christ who has claimed so clearly back in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he calls for the response. Do you believe this? And that's, that's the question. And so many here in verse 45 see and believe and live. I assume and think there's a lot of truth and genuine and saving and living faith there. But it's not going to be our focus this morning. But look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. At first, it's just kind of hard to believe. How could that be their response to such a revelation. How after what they have just seen? Just keep in mind this whole text, no one is trying to deny what has happened. No one is trying to explain it away. Lazarus was dead, Lazarus is alive. They saw it. What did they do with it? Well, they tattle. They're, they're tattle tales. In England, they would be called telltales. I like that a little bit better. Tell tales. Today we'd say they're rats or they're snitches. And we all know snitches get stitches, right? Everybody knows that. Back in the day, they would have been called pick thanks. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and faithful are arrested. They're put on trial. One of the three witnesses against them is called pick thank. And he tells on them for uh, speaking against the noble prince of the land. Satan is the prince. Don't be a pick thank. Don't pick a thanks. In other words, don't pursue thanks or praise or favor by speaking against someone or telling on someone. That's a helpful qualification of the problem here. Right, let's be clear. I want my children to tell me when another child is sinning or doing something dangerous. Right? I, I want to know that. That's not being a tattletale. We want people to speak and come to us when there is abuse. The problem with talebearing is the motive. A tattletale's motive is selfish. I do not want my children telling on their sisters just to get them in trouble. We're working on this right now with Tessa or, or to seek attention or praise. I don't that, that's being a tattletale. But I do want them to tell on their sisters when the concern is genuinely for their good. It happened this week? It's dangerous that Tessa is standing on the heater and jumping off the heater. Dad, come and stop Tessa from jumping off the heater. Good, right? Thank you, daughters, right? That's that's not being a tattletale. That's being good, that's, that's, that's a good motive. The question is the motive. Is it good or is it bad? Here, in contrast with those of verse 45, the motive is clearly bad. And so they go and tattle on the Christ, knowing what the religious authorities think of Jesus, knowing that they have already been out to get him. Now things are about to escalate, now things get official. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. We read the word council there. In the Greek, it's the word soonhedrion, or the Sanhedrin. There has been this sort of unofficial mob mentality movement toward trying to arrest and kill Jesus already. It hasn't been working. The question in verse 47 could literally be translated what are we doing? In other words, whatever we've been doing has not been working. And so, the council, the Sanhedrin, is gathered. They were just, the, this was like the, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive body, all under the, you know, the rule of the Romans, of course. But it was all three of those things kind of rolled into one. This, these guys, this group, governed all of Israel's internal affairs. There was no separation of powers. All the power—it's the last shape. There's no more. You don't have to worry about it. All the power was possessed by these seventy men, and power seems to be their concern. We've talked before about the two Jewish parties: the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees made up the majority. Of this council, the Pharisees were a very vocal, influential minority. And remember, these two groups hated each other. These were the Democrats and the Republicans, and they did not get along. You can read about it in Acts 23. They were enemies, divided, and yet here they come together as friends, united. Why? Jesus. Notice their concern. This man performs many signs. Again, no denial. Of the fact of the signs. No attempt to explain them away. Well, you know, he had a stash of fish and bread in a cave behind him, and he was just kind of pulling that out and feeding the people. Lazarus wasn't really dead, he was just sick, hiding in the tomb, and then he kind of came out. Now, again, they admit the signs, they confessed the sign, but they denied the doer of the sign. They don't know what to do with the doer of the sign. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Here's their concern. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they don't know what to do. Ah, thankfully, Caiaphas does. We are introduced to Caiaphas, the high priest. This passage is just dripping with dramatic And tragic irony. We know that Jesus is the great high priest. Here is supposedly this priest, this high priest, passing judgment on the great high priest. He's the head of the council, the man with the most power. This is supposed to be the spiritual head of the people, the one that's supposed to go between God and man as mediator. And he has a plan. Man. And sometimes I struggle with my spiritual leadership skills. This guy makes me feel a little bit better About myself. Look at verse 49. You know nothing at all, first off. Again, kind of a jerk, it seems. Josephus, ancient Jewish historian alive at this time, writes that the Sadducees were rather rough and coarse in their behavior, and they were often quite rude even to one another. Just what Josephus writes about the Sadducees. Now, Josephus was a Pharisee, so keep that in mind. He already hated the Sadducees, grain of salt. But the shoe seems to fit. Here, you know nothing at all, but Caiaphas knows something. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And what's he saying there most simply, just most surface, what's he saying? Kill him. It's not complicated. He's a potential problem. Stop the potential problem. Kill him and be done with it. And that's where we get to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, now it's official. The most powerful man in the land, the most powerful group, they have now spoken. Rejection is the plan. Murder is the plan. That's their response to the revelation of Christ, the resurrection, and the life. They plan to kill the resurrection. They plan to put the life to death. And again, it's pretty tempting and easy to distance ourselves from them here. That's pretty awful. Right, these terrible bad guys are planning the death of Jesus. You know, I've never really planned the death of Jesus. So, you know, let's move on. I'm good. Okay, well, let's get, Hold on a second. Okay, what, what is a plan? I don't really know because I'm not a good planner. But a plan is simply a scheme or a method. It's a way to go about uh, doing or accomplishing something. A plan aims at some end and then lays out how to get to or achieve that end. Their plan is to reject the Christ and kill the Christ. What's your plan? Maybe we should always be asking ourselves, okay, what ultimately, what end are you aiming at? What are you seeking and pursuing and how are you planning to get there? Again, consider that. I want you to be, Hold on to that. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why are you pursuing what you are pursuing? I'm asking myself that constantly. Keep that in mind. Hopefully, point number two will help us better see ourselves in these villains. Because we haven't yet answered the why questions. These two groups, once divided, come together, united in opposition to Jesus. Their united response to the revelation of Christ is to kill the Christ. Why? Power. It's because Jesus is a threat to their power. Point number two, go back to verse 48 again. Let's look at the power. He's performing all these signs. If he keeps this up, everyone will believe in him and follow him. What's the problem with that? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Greek there literally says the Romans will come and take away from us, from us Sanhedrin, the place and the people. It's clear that they are not at all concerned with the well-being of the nation. The word literally there is just the people. They're entirely concerned with themselves and their own positions of power and prestige and pleasure. The place is the temple. The nation is the word ethnos, just the people. The temple is the center of power and authority. The whole of Jewish life and culture revolves around the temple. It's the Sanhedrins. They're in control of it. They have the power over it. The people are the ones who look to and revolve around and depend upon the temple for their life and culture. And thus the Sanhedrin have the power over the place that has the power over the people. And thus they have all the power over all the people. Pause. What, what is power? What is this thing we talk about a lot? If you have been paying attention to our current cultural conversation at all, you'll probably notice that that increasingly power is at the very center of the conversation, at the very center of how people are reading reality in history. Increasingly, the dominant worldview tells you to read everything, the whole of history, politics, relationships, through the lens of power. Everything is about power and power dynamics. There are those who have power, and there are those who do not, and those who have the power always oppress those who do not. So everything and everyone ends up getting categorized into these various groups based upon power. Privileged, poor, powerful, powerless, oppressor, oppressed, and so on. And if everything is about power, and power is the problem, and the whole of history is just a history of oppression and victimhood and power dynamics, then the solution is you deconstruct the system, you transfer the power from the oppressors to the oppressed, and you just shift the balance of the power. But again, the, the point is that right now, increasingly, those who talk about culture and history and these things, they will tell you that everything is about power. It's, it's a silly if you really think about it, it's a silly idea. Yet it's a dangerous idea. It's it's reductionistic. It ignores the whole host of other factors. History and politics and relationships are very complicated. To say that it all boils down to power is foolish. But that's not to say that power is unimportant. That's not to say that uh, it is not important who has the power and how they use the power. Of course it's important and of course it has been used over the course of history as it is abused here in our text. What is power? It's simply the ability to act or produce an effect. It is the capacity to do something. That's all power is. We saw this up in verse 43. Look at it. We're talking about power. We closed last time with a consideration of the display of God's glory through Christ's power. Christ Jesus, the resurrection and the life marches up to the tomb, the place of death, and speaks Lazarus, dead Lazarus, departed Lazarus, decaying Lazarus, that Lazarus come out. And he does. That's power. That's the ability to act the capacity to do something, the best and biggest something. I obviously cannot walk, where are we? I obviously cannot walk over here to giant Calvary Cemetery and do anything for the almost 2 million dead people there. I have no power over death. Christ does. He has power. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh. Jeremiah 32:17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you. Verse 27. I am the Lord Yahweh, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me. First Chronicles 29:11. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power And the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Psalm 91.1. He is God Almighty. And he's just made that undeniably clear in the raising of Lazarus with but a word. Just a word. That's power. I was reading Friday morning. One of my favorite stories in Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Syria rolls in, and invades Judah, surrounds Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. Um, uh, Sennacherib sends his spokesman, the Rabshakeh, whatever you pronounce I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a cool name. Uh, and this guy, this kind of this uh, this spokesman, calls out in the hearing of Israel, in mocking defiance in verse 4, and says this, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Verse 5. This is so good. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And the answer is yes, as it turns out. As God sweeps in and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians, without the help of his armies. Yes, his words, his mere words are powerful words. It is by his word that the whole world was created. It is by his word that the whole world holds together. It is by his word that he creates physical life and creates spiritual life. Christ as Yahweh God rightfully and wonderfully possesses all power and authority as he has just demonstrated And by the way, look at how he uses it. That's what power is for. He serves. He saves. He seeks Lazarus' good. He gives Lazarus his life. Here's ultimate power used for ultimate good. And they have all seen this. They've just witnessed this display of infinite power. And so again, it's the height of irony that their primary concern in the face of such a display of perfect power is to do whatever they can to try and hold on and preserve their pitiful power. If this continues, the Romans will come in and take our place and our people from us. Again, they're saying our power over those people. The privilege, prestige, and pleasure that comes with our power. Christ as God has all power and all authority and He has just shown them, they as man Will do anything to try and assert and preserve their own power and authority. Is this not then the very heart and soul of sin? Is this not then the exact same thing that each and every one of us does in our own way? We may not be in the political positions of power that they were in, but we're not doing anything different. Consider the beginning. Consider Adam and Eve. What did they have? Everything. Everything. What did they lack? Nothing. What did they not have? It's actually a different question. Because what's the one thing that they did not have? They did not have God's position and God's power. And so what did Satan come in and say? How did he tempt them? First, sin. The introduction of sin into the human world. How did Satan seek to assault God's position and power? Remember, God has just created everything with his powerful word. And so what does Satan do? He comes in and twists that word. He subtly seeks to cast doubt on that word. His first words are, did God really say? They have everything but God's position and power. And the second thing Satan says is, well, you will will be like God. In other words, you will be God. That's what he's holding out to them. He is He's tempted them with God's position and power. And listen, that's what sin is. that uh, that, that deadly combination of the unbelief and pride that, that both denies God and his word and then asserts self and its word in his place. That's what we do, all of us, every time in all of our sin. That's what we are saying every time. We're, so we are not be saying it uh, verbally or consciously, but we are saying, "You are not good. Your word is not good. You're wrong about this. I'm right. You must then not be God. I'm going to go ahead and be God." Then you see we're building towards substitution in point four. I had to call it Passover for the alliteration, but we're going to be talking about substitution. I won't be able to resist my favorite substitution quote from John Stott. It's been a couple of months, but it's so brilliant. But Stott starts by saying that substitution lies at the very heart of sin. When you think of sin, think of substitution. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Man asserts himself against God. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. Man claims rights, prerogatives, power that belongs to God alone. Sin is substitution. It is our foolish and evil attempt to put ourselves where only God belongs, to claim what belongs to God alone, to try and be God. That's what sin is. It's not just making a mistake. It's not just breaking some rules. Yes, sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Shorter catechism. But God's law, remember, is a revelation and reflection of His heart of His perfect moral character uh, and goodness. And thus the breaking of that law that reflects that heart is a direct assault on Him. It is a direct and defiant assertion of ourselves against Him and an attempt to put ourselves in His place. What if we believed that this is really what our sin is? Our attempt to, to dethrone God, to ungod God, to kill God. What if you reminded yourself and rehearsed this next time you were tempted to look at pornography or to gossip or to tear down a brother or sister in Christ with your words? Hold on. This, This is sin. What is that? Oh, this is an evil attempt to put myself in God's place, to defy God, to deny God, to destroy God, to try and be God. Wouldn't we act and live differently if we actually believe sin is what Scripture says that it is? So much more than we tend to think. So much infinitely worse and weighty. And there are few clearer examples of this than our text. These foolish, sinful little men are so concerned with preserving their pitiful power that they are willing to put to death the God of all power. They're concerned with preserving their power But what they end up doing is only revealing unbelief's great power. Because, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the God of all power. But they should. Look at what he's just done. He has just so clearly revealed who he is in what he has done. He has undeniably displayed his power over death itself, as life itself, and yet they can't. They won't see it. Again, that's an important lesson for us. No amount of evidence, no amount of evidence will suffice to convince those who are settled in their opposition to Christ. You can be the best and brightest apologist in the world. You can set up and knock down all the arguments perfectly. Ultimately, it won't matter. Because let's be honest, we are not. People are not rational. People are rationalizing. We have what we want to believe, that which best serves us, And then we sort through the facts and interpret them in whatever way best serves to confirm what we want to believe. And so again, just like them, our only hope is grace. Our only hope is a spirit-given sight of the glory of Christ. And this is why the best thing that we do is we point people to Christ, we use the Word, we bring people in contact with the Christ of the Word, and we hope that God will open eyes. But they, in their sin... Can't see it. They are only concerned with themselves. They are only concerned with preserving the power to pursue their pleasure. And that's where we're really no different. No one's rejection of Christ is intellectual or evidence based. It is always moral. It is always ultimately rooted in this same desperate desire to preserve our own power to pursue our own pleasure, to preserve the power to pursue the self. To be God. This is what sin is. And this is what we all do in our sin. We're no different than them. We want to be God. We want to determine good and bad. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We want to do whatever we can to preserve the illusion that we are in control and can do what we want. See yourself and your sin in these plans to preserve this power. Are you doing the exact same thing? I want to be in control. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to set him aside. What are you planning and pursuing and why? Are your plans little more than your attempt to preserve your power and to pursue your pleasure? If so, be both confronted and comforted with point number three, providence, God's providence. Back to Caiaphas. We've skipped a verse. Caiaphas has said in verse 50, you guys are dumb. It's simple. Kill Jesus. It's better that one man should die for the people. Look at verse 51. This is such an important verse. 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Greek of the first part of 51 literally reads, Now this he did not say of himself. The King James says, In this he spake not of himself. I'm going to try to bring spake back. The NASB is best. Now he did not say this on his own. He did not say this on his own. What does that mean? Yeah, whose words are these? Verse 50 is clear. These are Caiaphas' words. Verse 51 is equally clear. These are God's words. Caiaphas was not forced or coerced to utter these words. Caiaphas chose these words. He spoke these words. He poured his meaning and his intent into these words. And God ordained these words. God chose these words. God spoke these words. God poured his meaning and his intent into these words. This, then, is a wonderfully helpful verse as we struggle and seek to see how both God is sovereign and man is responsible. Again, it's hard for our little finite brains to hold together. It's so hard that many Christians just reject one or the other. Well, I'm going to get rid of this one or this one. Well, we cannot quite understand how both can be true, so we're just going to deny uh, you know, God's absolute. He can't be absolute sovereignty. Man has to have absolute autonomy and libertarian free will, and so God can't be sovereign. So they deny God's sovereignty. Also, people end up denying the responsibility or the legitimate freedom of man, right? There's these both extremes that people flip to because we can't see how these two things hold together. Uh, Both extremes are wrong because here we see Scripture clearly affirming the compatibility of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They go together. They work together. They are both true. And this is wonderfully good news for you. Caiaphas is a responsible moral agent who chose his words to reveal his wicked ends. And God is the sovereign king over all who is, point two, so powerful that he is ordaining and overruling and working and using and directing all the actions of all men to bring about his good and glorious ends. And this, verse 51, is why this point is God's providence. Or this point could have just been plans part two. Man's plans, God's plans. Again, that's, that's all that providence is. It's the working out of God's plans. It's kind of like the Presbyterians have stolen the purview of providence. That was off the top of my head. That's pretty good. Um, that, that's sad. That should not be the case. Baptists used to be all about God's providence. I've mentioned before uh, Roger Williams, Puritan, uh, the founder of the colony of Rhode Island, and the first Baptist church ever in America all the way back in 1638 if you go to their website today the church actually goes by the name first Baptist Church in America that's pretty cool Um, but he founded it in the capital of his colony which he chose to name Providence Providence is important we used to know that Providence is important we have tended to forget these days it's Latin the prefix pro means before videre just means to see so literally, Providence means to see beforehand or, or foresight, but Providence is not just foreseeing, it is for doing. We've just seen God's power as Almighty God, anything he foresees necessarily includes his foreordaining and doing that thing. God is sovereign, and he decrees all that happens. Isaiah 46:10 he declares the end from the beginning, and he will accomplish all his. Purposes. And then God carries out that plan, that decree. He executes His sovereignty through creation. He creates everything that exists, obviously, and then He carries on through His providence as He sustains and directs everything. All the little papers. I love thinking about God's providence. I got home from vacation. My back window looks out over our garage. It's falling apart and it's full of junk. There's a fishing rod on the top of our garage. I don't know why. It wasn't there before I left. I, I like to think about God's providence. Like what, what, first of all, who put that there and why? Drunkenness was involved, I'm sure. Um, not mine, other people's <laughs> drunkenness. But I love to think about, in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, Like what, what's he doing? What's the ordaining and directing and going on that he decided and chose and ordained that there's a fishing pole on the top of my garage? And all these little papers... Fallen down so that you're distracted and laughing while I'm preaching. I love to consider God's particular providence and see what God is doing through all the details to bring out all the sinfulness and the wickedness in my heart. You need God's providence. Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the 1689. What is it? Providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures, and things nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of god's providence right so god's providence is simply his his upholding his sustaining of all things it's his directing his governing of all things and so before time began God decrees all that is going to come to pass. And then God perfectly and actively sustains and directs all things to his good and glorious ends. That's his sovereignty, his power in point two, working itself out in his providence or plan point three. And that's what we see happening in verse 51. And what I want, I want you to see how uh, this is such good news. Yes, I preach Providence a lot, but because, it's because I honestly believe we desperately need to know it and live in light of it. because do you understand what this means for you? I think Caiaphas is terrible. These plans are wicked, aimed at evil ends. but God. But God is good. And though Caiaphas seems to have power in this situation, God actually does have all power in all situations, and he always uses that power and executes his perfect plan, which is always for your ultimate good. There's so much comfort to be found there. God is not just sitting back and watching what's happening. He's actively ordaining and ordering, decreeing and directing, using and overruling even the evil of his enemies, even the sinful foolishness of his children, of us. And he's able to take all of that and work it and use it and bring good out of it and through it. Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Man's plan, God's plan. God's providence overrules man's sinful plan. And praise God for that. I've had all kinds of stupid plans. My stupid plans can do nothing to halt or hinder his perfect plan. His purpose will stand. I can't mess it up. I have great capacity to mess things up. I can't mess his plan up. Huge. His purpose will stand. You can't mess it up either. I've always loved the picture we're given in the second psalm. Uh, You need to know and memorize Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1, God's word. Psalm 2, God's king. Psalm 1, Jesus is the word. Psalm 2, Jesus is the king of kings. It's all about him. Blessing is found in the word and in the son of God. Central to everything. But in Psalm 2, the nations are raging and plotting. And it may feel like that right now. Our culture is increasingly raging. Putin is plotting. What's going on? The world sets itself against Yahweh and his Messiah, the Father and the Son. But verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That which may look so foreboding and formidable to us, that which may look so powerful, it's nothing. It's nothing to him. He laughs. At the foolish evil plans. Their plans are nothing to God. And so, Christian, take heart. Be strong and courageous. We literally have nothing to fear. Yes, Caiaphas meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And if that's true here, for the biggest thing, then you can trust that it's true for you. And whatever your thing is, no matter how small or how big, it's not as big as this, it's not as big as the death of Christ. And so you can trust him. God is not sitting back and watching. God is never passive. God is not scrambling, trying to figure out how to respond, what's happening, man, how, what do I do now? How can I bring good about this, out of this mess? No, he's, he's been it from the beginning. He's behind it from the beginning, orchestrating and ordaining it from the beginning, planning it, directing it, and guaranteeing it for your good from the very beginning. We just can't yet see how he's going to get it there. But can we trust him that he will? We can if we look at the cross. You can trust him always with and in everything. He is this big. He is this good. We plan often poorly. God plans always perfectly. We plan often sinfully. God plans always righteously. They made plans to put Jesus to death, but God had already made plans to send Jesus to his death. And that's point number four. This is not their doing. This is God's doing. Point number four. I'll be brief. Passover. Don't miss the implication of verse 51. The words of verse 50 are the words that seal Christ's fate. These are the words that condemn him to death. Verse 53. From that point on, they made plans to put him to death. But if 51 is true, then it is ultimately God that ordained the words that sealed Christ's death. We just read it in Isaiah 53. Never get over Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's will. We're seeing that played out in our passage. Why was that God's will? Substitution. Substitution is why. We saw it with sin. Sin is at, at its heart a substitution. So is Salvation. Caiaphas says in 50 that one should die for the people as a substitute. God says in 51 that one should die for the people as a substitute, though they each mean very different things by that. I love how Piper puts this. He says, Caiaphas meant we will kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. God meant I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. Wonderful. I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. You see, Caiaphas meant one wicked thing for one wicked purpose. God meant one wonderful thing for one good purpose. Salvation from himself through the substitution of his son. And what does that have to do with Passover? Why is this point Passover? Because that's the context that John draws our attention to as he closes part one of his book. Don't miss the fact that this is the end of part one. We are at the halfway mark of the book. Jesus is 30-something at this point. We don't know how old. Half of the book covers his whole life, mostly his whole three-year ministry. But we've still got half of the book left and only one week of life left. Why is so much space devoted to so little time? Because this is the whole point of his life. Death is the point of his life, and Passover is the whole context of that last week and that point. We see it in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Repetition. And many went up from him, from the country, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And John the writer has skillfully prepared us for this already through John the witness back in chapter 1, verse 29. Almost like bookends uh, to this section as John the witness sees Jesus and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb of God. Because that Passover was all about substitution. That Passover, it was all about salvation through sacrifice. It was one dying for another. One dying in the place of another. God has said back in Exodus, the firstborn will die unless unless there is a substitutionary death. Unless something dies in the place of that firstborn. Sacrifice the lamb. Paint the doorpost with the blood and I will pass over the place and the person. There has already been a death. The firstborn can live. And that is all about Christ. The whole point of that is to point us to Christ, our sacrificial lamb. A lamb can't take the place of a person. An animal cannot pay the penalty for a human created in the image of God. But God can. God become man can. And that's what Christ has done. That's what this whole first part has been building towards. This whole second part, this last week, this is why he has come. This is why half the book is devoted to one week, his death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what the whole thing's about. Sin separates. The wages of sin is death. Something has to be done about that for there to be life for us to live. The sin has to be paid for. God himself has come to make the payment in the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin this is the gospel the good news that paul tells us is the power of god for salvation we've just seen that power is the ability to act or accomplish that means that the gospel is able to produce an effect the gospel has the capacity to do something it saves it affects it creates it produces life and that's why it is ultimately God that ordains and orders and sends his son to die because that was the only way for us to live. That's why this comes right after verse 25. Right after he has said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, it shall he live. That's only possible because the resurrection was killed and the life died for us. Substitution. At the heart of both sin and sin, And salvation, we've seen sin, uh, man substituting himself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for man. God putting himself where only man deserves to be. God sacrificing himself for man and putting himself in our place, accepting our penalties and dying for us. That's the gospel. Salvation through substitution. The substitution of God himself for wicked Men and women like us. That's the truth that melts hearts, opens eyes, and changes lives, and changes everything. That's the glory of God on full display in the love of God that seeks the good of his sinful people at great cost to himself in sending his son to die in our place. God, I want to convince you that that is what life is about. And that's where life is found. And that's where you will find joy. These men planned it, but it was a pathetic plan to preserve their pitiful power. Praise God for his perfect providence and his good plan to bring about our ultimate good through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. God's purpose is the salvation of his people through the substitution of his son. And if he's this big and powerful and good, we can trust his providence in confidence that he will accomplish his purpose so rest rejoice remember see here's what i'm trying to do, seek seek to more and more align your plans with his perfect plan this is what we're praying in the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done as we seek to align what we want and what we love and what we live for with him Seek more and more to find your ultimate good in the Christ who is life. Praise God that his perfect providence overrules our sinful, foolish plans. Praise God that he is always working for the good of his people uh, through the sending of his son. I pray that you would find great hope and great joy in him. If you would bow with me, let me close this time with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the God of all grace. Father, how glorious it is that you, almighty God of all power, is this same God who condescends to seek the welfare of his people, to save his people, to love his people by coming and dying in Christ for your people, Lord. Father, thank you that you are both all-powerful and all-good. I pray that those twin truths would inform and influence every single thing that we do. Father, forgive us for how selfish and self-oriented our plans tend to be. Father, we thank you that your plan is perfect. Give us the eyes of faith to see it and to trust you. Even when we don't understand, even when it seems dark and difficult, give us the eyes to see you and to see your goodness and to trust that you know what you're doing and that you're working for our good. Father, help us to love Christ and to find our life in him. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.